if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we have in front of you a pew Bible. James is in the New Testament. If you don't know where James is, it's after Hebrews. If you don't know where Hebrews is, you can look in the table of contents. James is where we'll be. I mean, seriously, I, you know, I, a lot of people might not know where James is. And so if you don't, don't hesitate, don't find any, because you need to be in the Word. And, and, and here at Dawson, if you don't have the Bible in front of you, you're going to be lost. You're going to be lost in the sermon because I have nothing to share with you from my background or for wisdom. And, and I, I don't want to share. That's one of the reasons I preach with an open Bible because this is, this is what leads us. This is what guides us. And, and we want to be reminded of what he has said. And so James is where we are. And we're going to be there in the spring. We're going to be there in the summer. We're going to look at one verse this morning. I assure you, uh, we will we'll speed up the pace. Uh, Les would be in James for five years. And uh, there's a lot of wealth and wisdom in James. But, but it might not be pastorally, pastorally uh, practical to spend five years in James, nor helpful. So uh, we will speed it up. But one James, uh, James 1, verse 1, this morning I was helping a friend of mine, this is years and years ago, to move his grandmother out of the big house that he would spend a week or two with her and the old kind of homestead that they had. And she was downsizing after the loss of her husband and going into a duplex, sort of assisted living uh, complex there. And we were taking out furniture, we we're packing up books and books and books, and she had this huge bookcase. And it was full of, of Julia Childs and Paula Dean and like Southern Living, all of these kinds of things. I know not what I speak of right now. Those kinds of like cooking books. And she had just tons of them. So we we're putting them up, uh, packing them up, putting them up, packing them up and all those kinds of things. And then I leaned over to him and I said, man, your grandmother must be this amazing cook with all of this stuff here. And he said, man, she has not cooked in decades, but she, <laughs> she collects these cooking books and she just loves them and she goes through them and 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 I know a lot of you are cooks and and the last thing you do is try to get cookbooks uh you you have those recipes and they're passed down and you have these three by five note cards or you just not know them in your head but there are a lot of people that collect cookbooks but never make their way into the kitchen there are a lot of you in this room that know what the appeal of the cooking channel and the food network and all that kind of stuff is. And so you, you watch Bobby, Bobby Flay just like religiously. And Rachel Ray, you got her DVR'd. And you, the Pioneer Woman, I mean, it's just like, it is prime time uh, viewing for you. But you only eat out. Or you, you, you only eat what you can, like me, if, if Danielle's out of town, the parameters of what I eat is what I can open up and put in the microwave for 90 seconds. I mean, that's, that's my culinary skills. But all of the Food Network, all of these cookbooks, they're ultimately uh, have one purpose, and that is to instruct you and to inspire you to get into the kitchen, to, to cook something that is delicious and delights family and friends, to, to cook something, to prepare something with your actual hands that is going to nourish those that you invite into your home. The, the purpose of those recipes are for the sake of others that you will serve. Now, it's interesting because there is a temptation that we in the Christian faith collect recipes. 
We, we collect stories of the Bible, but we never get around to actually implementing those stories into our everyday life. We collect recipes of the biblical faith that never intersect with our real life. We never make it to the kitchen to serve those who need to be nourished by the wealth of his wisdom. And James is a good counter to that temptation. There are none of us in this room who call Christ Lord and Savior, who will not be tempted to keep our faith just as head knowledge and never to allow what has intersected our head to intersect our heart and then make its way to our hands. James is a book that is calling us to move just from a head faith to a heart penetrated, passionate faith that leads us to get our hands dirty in real life. Your real life as a student, your real life in your workplace, your real life in your neighborhood. James is not content for you just to think of the Christian faith in abstract theoretical ways. Now, that's the issue with James in some respects. And what I mean by that is James is so in your face and James is so challenging to the everyday extension and application of God's word that it has come into a little bit of conversation and a little bit of dispute over the history of the Christian faith. There's no greater example of this than Martin Luther, the great German reformer. When he's translating the German Bible, he comes to James and he, and he relegates it to the end of the canon. He relegates it to the very end of the book. He called it an epistle of straw. Luther said this about James. It mangles James, mangles the scripture, and thereby opposes Paul and all scripture. That's important to, to hear anyone in their context and to not take them out of context. So, so Luther is recovering the solace. He, he is recovering faith alone salvation alone. He's recovering justification by faith alone in Christ alone through his grace alone. And so when he comes to James, there seems to be at least a conversation. There seems to be at least a tension. How does Paul contradict James? When, when James comes to James 2 verse 14 that says, uh, faith without works is dead. And so Luther sees this as, as a challenge. Now, what we're going to discover is, is that in actuality, when you understand James in his context, Paul in its context, these are conversation partners that lead us to justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. It is a, it is a challenge, as Calvin said, that, that when we are saved by his grace alone, uh, that, that ultimately our salvation never is alone, but it always leads us to works. It always leads us, again, from our head to our heart to our hands. And so Luther gives us a challenge that we'll pick up down the road as we're walking through the book of James. But right now, I want us just to see in one verse how this verse is an introduction that helps us think about our Christian faith. It helps us think about our salvation. It helps us think about our identity. And it helps us to think about our calling in this world. So let's think about salvation first. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
One verse again. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And then verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4, it just jumps off into it. And we get to trials and temptations and blessed are you when you face. So we're not going to get there. We're going to get there next week. I just want us to look at that one verse and see at the very outset, by the identity of the author as James, we discover God's pursuit of one who is far from Christ. Who wrote the book of James? Well, we see James. There's three James in the New Testament. The most compelling evidence is that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing this. That this is James, who would have been a part of Jesus' earthly brothers, who actually rejected him while he was on the earth. We have a passage in John's Gospel in the seventh chapter, verse 5, that says this of Jesus' earthly brothers. For not even his brothers believed in him. So James is one of these earthly brothers who walked with Jesus, saw Jesus healing people, heard some of the teachings, but just could not believe in the divinity and the attributes that that he was saying that he was. When he says, I am, James is like, well, I know you. I grew up with you. I mean, you, you can't be who you say you are. Uh, These miracles, I mean, you could begin to understand how difficult it would be for the half-brother of Jesus to to ascribe to him what others were ascribing to him and what even Jesus is is saying, that he is the one who has come, the one that the prophets have spoken of. And so it is important and a great reminder to us that even Jesus in his earthly ministry did not convince everyone of his divinity. That there were those who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who did not believe while he was here on the earth. Now that, that makes, that, that's important. And it's important this way because there's some of you in this room who have, you have brothers. I mean, you have earthly brothers. You have earthly sisters who do not believe in the God that has pursued you and has captured your heart. You have coworkers and you have neighbors who have never professed faith in Jesus Christ. You have sons and daughters that maybe you have raised in this church and in the faith, and they've renounced it, and they're living outside of God's will for their life and in complete disobedience and and moving away. And you think to yourself, if I was just more winsome in my witness, then my coworker would certainly believe. If I was just more faithful in following him, then certainly my, and you could fill in the blank, would believe. And there's some of you who are parents, who are fathers and who are mothers, who look back and there, there's a lot of heaping guilt. And you think, if I would have done this differently, or if I could have done that differently, then they would believe in him. And I think it's a great reminder that Jesus, as he was walking in the midst of his earthly ministry, not everyone believed, even those in a familial circle that were closest to him. So do not be surprised that those who are closest to you would would run away from the faith that you give allegiance to. The Bible reminds us again and again the hardness of the human heart. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about very clearly that we without Christ are blinded 
to the truth. There is an enemy who wants at nothing more than for your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers to not trust, to not believe. But James's earthly disbelief in his brother is not the end of the story. This is amazing to me that Jesus even post his crucifixion doesn't give up on his earthly brother. That, that James's disbelief wasn't the end of the story. So we have Paul coming to this time where he describes what Jesus did after he was raised and before he ascends to the right-hand throne of the Father. And we have this description of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll see it on the screen starting in verse 3. It's a synopsis of the gospel. For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 5 This is where we get this itinerary. What did he do? He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to, and notice notice one person that singled out. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Boy, this, this is so comforting to me, that God desires the salvation of our loved ones more than we do. That he pursues our father, mother, sister, brother, neighbor, co-worker, son, daughter, niece, nephew, that he pursues them. I mean, Jesus, is, he has this one-on-one conversation with his half-brother James to what? To show him, hey, I dotted on Friday, but I'm walking with you today. And James believes, he believes, take comfort that as you pray for your loved one who's never come to that place where they have said yes to the gospel, that, that their disbelief isn't the end of the story. And their disbelief doesn't then say to God that he will not pursue them. I love Malcolm Muggeridge. He was this British journalist that lived decades ago, and he talked about it kind of in a C.S. Lewis kind of way of how he was an atheist, agnostic journalist, but the hound of heaven pursued him. And I want to remind you that God doesn't desire anyone to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. For God so loved the world, and the world and everyone includes your loved ones, includes your neighbors, includes your co-workers. And he pursues through the power of the Holy Spirit, and who knows what he is orchestrating, even in the midst of your daughter living in the prodigal land. Even in the midst of your son living far away, no telling how he is working in the background to woo and to draw and to call them home to follow Christ. Here we have this example of James who goes from a jeering sibling of Jesus to a worshiping servant of Jesus. Here's James who is pursued literally by the resurrected Christ and he bows his knee And what we discover in the earliest portions of the book of Acts is that James becomes a leader. I mean, he becomes the the lead elder of the first Jerusalem church there. And when we come to Acts chapter 15, there's a good bit of controversy. How far will the gospel spread outside of of, uh, Jewish Christians? How far will it spread outside of Jerusalem? you got this guy named Paul who feels called to the Gentiles. And they come to one controversy in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. And guess who's there? 
James is. So the one who disbelieved is now one who is proclaiming Jesus Christ. I want you to see just with the first verse, first word, that God pursues those who are far from Christ. Secondly, I want you to discover God's claim upon a follower of Christ. I love the description. It's just so easy to skip over this. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Move on, move on, move on. What could James, what kind of business cards could James have thrown out as he's writing to these churches here? What, what, what type of name dropping could James have done in this moment? I mean, James could say, James, pastor of the first Christian church in the world. Or he could have said, James, the eldest half-brother of the incarnate Son of God. Or he could have said, James, a longtime associate to Peter and James and to John and to Paul and to the rest of the apostles. But he doesn't do any of that. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no boasting. There's no pretense. There's no name dropping. There's no grandstanding here. He wants his primary identification to be known by his relationship to the one who has captured his heart. The word he uses that's translated in the English Standard Version, we have it as servant. And it's a word that is doulos. And that word is used 126 times in the New Testament. You'll find it translated bondservant. You'll find it translated servant like it is here in the ESV. But really to get the full nature, the full orb meaning of this, oftentimes it is translated as slave. I mean, James is saying that my half-brother is now my master. James is saying that uh, I'm not just, he's not just my savior, but he's my Lord. We we make all of these false distinctions between what God has a claim upon our life. So, So we say these kinds of things with this cheap grace mentality that Jesus desires to save us from our sins, but he's not calling us to follow him. So I've made Jesus my savior, but I've not made him my Lord. There is, that's not a multiple choice option in the gospel. Now, we understand his lordship more, but I think it's very important for you to understand and for me to understand his identity and our identity, that that Jesus isn't looking to be one more thing in your already well-adjusted, successful life. Jesus isn't looking to be an elective in the coursework of your life. Jesus doesn't give us the option, and he's not asking us to be an accessory in the wardrobe of your life, but rather his goal, his goal is to clothe you completely in him. Mere Christianity Lewis, C.S. Lewis, comes to this place. I think he just beautifully describes the full lordship of Christ and the full claim of Christ upon our life when he says this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money And so much of your work, I want you. I'm not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. This is a powerful challenge as we look at the identity of of one who is a follower of Christ. 
This is God's claim upon you as a follower. There's a temptation in all of our lives. Excuse me if I've used this illustration again, but I think it, it connects to what I'm talking about. When Sort of an odd part of my personality has to do with eating habits. And so what that comes to is that uh, generally I, I don't like my food to touch each other. So have you ever been, have you ever been at your grandmother's house or been at a restaurant and somebody puts their food in front of you and you've got chicken and then you've got green beans and you've got corn and the green bean juice gets at the bottom of the chicken and then you got to, I mean, it's just, it's unnatural is what it is. <laughs> you know, it just, it's one of those things that you just, you just breathe. I'm like, oh, I so, so the way I rectified this in, in my own house is that I have a plate. I have a plate. It's a, it was a, I won't give this away too much, but it, it was a blue plate, okay? And so the blue plate was a step above what you would give a, a four-year-old or a five-year-old. <clears throat> you know, it didn't have Star Wars on it. It didn't have the Dukes of Hazard on it or anything like that, but it had clear compartments. So my green beans would not intermingle with my sister Schubert's role because that's not natural to do that. And so I could segment in all of these compartments, my meat from the vegetables and all the juices would stay in their place. And all was well at the Eldridge household. Now we moved, we moved. And so... There was a grace period, and then I go looking for my blue plate, and I could not find my blue plate. So I asked Danielle, and she said, it just didn't make the move, David. <laughs> and I said, well, whose, whose decision was that? And then I was, that was not a committee meeting here. This is, and in the Christian life, boy, we say, Lord, I want you to be the master of this two hours a day. And we, and we segment off the rest. Or, or we say, I, I, will, I will let you have this container of my thought life, but I don't want the, the, the Holy Spirit to breathe own this part of my life so you can have all of this but don't touch my finances you can have all of this but don't touch my thought life you can have all of this but don't touch my work life you can have all of this but don't touch these parts because I've segmented my life in such a way that you can rule and you can reign and God is saying to us that ultimately our primary identity is one who's ruled and reigned by the one who is Lord of all. And if he's not Lord of all, he is Lord of nothing. And there are many of us in this room that we have segmented the Holy Spirit in our life and we've said, you can have this part and you can have this part and you can have this part. And I want to remind you as a child of God that his goal is to throw the plate out. His goal is to say those segments and compartments, I want it all. Notice with me, as we look at this passage, God's pursuit of one far from Christ. Notice with me, God's claim upon a follower of Christ. And notice finally, God's purpose for us as followers of Christ. In, in verse 1, again, 
in what seems to be just this incidental little phrase that is so easy to pass up, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, what? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's so enigmatic. It's mysterious. What does that even mean to the 12 tribes in the dispersion? I mean, maybe this is one of the reasons Luther had an issue with Paul. Paul would say to the church at Philippi, there it is. To the church at Rome, and there it is. Uh, I mean, it's just clear. It's a clear, you know, you, you knew where it was going. And then we have James saying to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And then he just says greetings. Like everybody knows who he's talking to. And then we have to think to ourselves, what, what does that mean? Who is James, the half-brother of Jesus, talking to here? Who is he writing this letter to? Okay, so we can read into this. Twelve tribes in the dispersion here is the historical origins of the Israelites. The Israelite nation descended from Jacob's 12 sons. So you have the 12 tribes, the Israelites there. So there's a sense in which after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection... The Christian message first goes to, to who? It goes to Jewish people. Jesus, as a Jewish person, comes for his people. And the first converts, not exclusively, but many of the first converts, were people who descended from the 12 tribes. The Jewish people here. First converts were, were Jewish people. So Jewish Christians were the large majority of the early Christian church. Even when Paul comes and begins to spread to the Gentile people, he has this desire for his people to be saved. He, he bleeds with just anguish in Romans 9, 10, and 11, saying, I'm, I'm taking the message to everyone that's being grafted in the Gentiles, but, but what about the Israelites? What about my people here? And so what we discover is that the 12 tribes in dispersion are Jewish Christians that are scattered in the Roman world. Now, where, where do I get that from? Well, we have to do a little comparison between the book of James and the book of Acts. So Acts starts, the church is birthed, it begins to spread. And what we discover is with Stephen stoning, with this martyrdom, the Jerusalem Christians that are gathering together, they begin to be dispersed. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that the Jewish people begin, the Jewish Christians begin to disperse and be scattered in Judea and into Samaria. Take, just note that, Judea and Samaria. And then we have in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, that they go even as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Syrian Antioch. Notice the way that Luke describes that, even as far. And so you remember in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, verse 8, he says, Jesus, before he ascends to the right-hand throne of God, he says, you are going to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, the disciples didn't understand that that was also a geographical commissioning. And they certainly didn't understand that one of the ways, one of the impetuses for them to go out to these places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, would be persecution. But it is a reminder that God is sovereign over the movements of his people. That one of the ways that the Christian message is spread, one of the ways that we discover the, the church spreading all across the world is through persecution that God works together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose to be signposts and lightposts all throughout the world. And this shouldn't surprise us because when you open up the book of Genesis, you know what you discover? God moving his people and doing it for a reason. 
He says to Abram, I know you know everybody in your hometown. I know you're really comfortable here, but leave it. Go to a place that I'm going to show you. And then we come to Genesis 12, verse 3. Why does Abram do that? So he could be a blessing to all the nations. And then you fast forward into the book of Genesis and you have a guy by the name of Joseph. And Joseph has these brothers and there's a tremendous amount of sibling rivalry. They beat him up. They leave him for dead. They sell him into slavery. And he just so happens to go over to Egypt so he could be a voice piece in Pharaoh's palace. And then you just so happen to have a Pharaoh who doesn't know the God of Jacob and Joseph, forgets the, the agreements and forgets the camaraderie that they have. And then he begins to say, boy, there are a lot of Israelites growing up here. And if we're not careful, they're going to be a threat to us. So this is edict that is passed. So Moses' mother does this uh, sacrificial thing to be able to give up her son and the ability to raise him in her own household so that ultimately, as we see in the sovereignty of God, he sells his way into Pharaoh's household. It's just a brief illustration of the way that God guides even his people's movements. And, And you could be living anywhere. You could have been born in Sacramento or San Jose. You, you, could, you could right now have deep roots in Indiana or India. But you happen to be in the Birmingham metro area. And it is not accidental. It is not coincidental. The people that you go to school with, not accidental. The people that you work with, not accidental. The, the home that you live in and the sphere of influence that you have, it is not accidental, but it is the providential leading of God for you to be an outpost to be a light, to be salt with those that are around you. And just as he disperses the 12 tribes, these early Christians that are scattered over the Greco-Roman world, and he's writing to them to comfort them, to challenge them. So you need to understand that God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. All of us, I mean, if if I could give a, a mic here, you could give a testimony of this. But, but it is not accidental. It's not accidental that I'm your pastor here. There are a lot of tremendous pastors. But I believe that God has called me here under his sovereign plan. And I have the great joy of serving you. And I look back over my ministry and look back over the joy of 19 years of marriage with Danielle and see from the parsonages that we lived in to the houses that we bought, that it just so happened that we bought or lived next to these people. And many of those turned into relationships that are lasting relationships. They've been funerals that I've preached for neighbors, family members that never would step foot in the door, but I just so happened to live in proximity to those. There are weddings that I've gotten to conduct for people that were not church members because I just so happened to live in that house and in that community. From the, from the people that you get to know on the baseball field or through the band or through your neighborhood, you are sovereignly placed there to be a light and to be salt. And it is not accidental, but it is the providential leading. And there's some of you even in this room who it very well may be in an Abram-like way that God says, I know you know Birmingham. I know you love this place, but I'm calling you to leave this place for the sake of the nations. And I'm calling you to leave this place so that you can be a neighbor in San Francisco or Seattle or wherever it might be. So your work transfers you. 
but God sovereignly moves you. Your work lays off, but God sovereignly works all things together for those that you're going to live next to. You couldn't find a house in the particular neighborhood that you wanted to be in, but God had a, had a greater plan for those neighbors that are going to be around you. You didn't get the teacher that you really wanted to get, but God had greater plans. And I'm here to remind you that he is a God not over, only over the, the tremendous historical redemptive plan for all the nations, but he is a God over the details of your life. And if he can use the persecution of the early church to bring them into proximity with those that needed to hear the gospel, I am here to tell you that he is sovereignly moving you if you would have eyes to see and ears to hear to the opportunities that he has had for you to be an outpost for him. So as we come to the end of this sermon, don't waste your place. Don't waste the opportunity of your workplace, of your neighborhood, of your sphere of influence, of your friendships, to point people with the opportunities that you have to him. So as we come to the end of this sermon, it's going to lead us in a lot of different ways. And I'm tempted to say a lot more than I need to say in the first sermon, but James has that kind of effect on a preacher. It just preaches itself in some respects. This is a wake-up call to all of us that are in this room who maybe will need to repent of the temptation to collect biblical recipes without ever being challenged to get our hands dirty in the kitchen serving him for his glory. Maybe some of us need to be reminded, and more than that, we might need to be comforted that God is pursuing that loved one that we are faithfully praying for. And he loves them more than we do. And he desires their salvation more than we do. And maybe finally, you just need to be reminded of his purpose in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, to be a light for him where he has, not accidentally, but providentially placed you. No matter where you are and how this book intersects with you, at least the first verse, be reminded that this epistle will challenge us to allow God to use our real faith in him to intersect with our real life. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and the way that it speaks to us. We pray that we'd be open to hear from you in a new and fresh way. We pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. Oh, Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit in and through your word. I pray for that person that is far from you. I pray that even today, they would see that even in their disbelief, even in their hardness of heart, that you, God, are pursuing them, that they're here this morning and it's not accidental, but but you're calling to them to repent and to believe. I pray for that person, that father, that mother, that grandfather, that grandmother, that friend, that coworker who's been pleading with you for that loved one to be saved and decades, decades have gone by, years have gone by. I pray that we can be reminded that you're the one who does the saving, that you're the one who pursues us in our blindness, in our deafness spiritually. May we see where you're working and may we join you in your mission to reach those that are far from you. I pray that we'll see the purpose purpose of where we live, the purpose of where you've placed us, 
from the persecution of those early Christians, none of it was accidental, but it was sovereignly used for a platform to share the gospel. May we see that where you've placed us is for such a time as this. May we be open to follow where you lead as we listen to your Holy Spirit speak to us even now, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Christ. Amen.